Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here uh, with uh, Dr. Ed Soltes, who directs our surgical transplant uh, and LVAD program, and Dr. Jerry Eastup, who directs the medical side, the medical side to the heart failure and transplant program. So gentlemen, a lot's happening in the heart failure and transplant world. Uh, So let me start on the surgical side. What's new on the surgical side that people need to know about? Well, Steve, we've had uh, some significant developments over the past two years with the development of a new LVAD, the HeartMate 3 LVAD. Uh, this is a magnetically levitated LVAD uh, that uh, is able to provide full uh, left ventricular support for patients. And as typical with other LVADs, can be put in as both a bridge to transplant or as a destination therapy device in patients who are otherwise not candidates for transplant. The advantage of this device, though, was really shown in the momentum trial results presented earlier this spring where the two-year results showed that the survival after LVAD implant at two years was equivalent to heart transplant. So high, how high would that be? So that's in the mid-80% range. Yes. So that is a tremendous advantage now for LVAD uh, patients uh, who, who obviously, for whatever reason, either are not able to receive a transplant or are still waiting for a transplant. The advantage, of course, is they can live a normal life uh, with uh, a quality of life that is fantastic. Um, And one of the problems that we faced with the previous LVADs, which was pump thrombosis, that is clotting of the LVAD pump, uh, is almost non-existent. It's 0.4% now. So, Jerry, has this uh, altered uh, the timing of when you refer patients for for surgical interventions? So it, it has in that now when weighing the projected benefits versus risks. And it's important to consider whether someone is sicker and need earlier or even ambulatory patients with a better benefit risk profile versus the adverse events. Um, We wanna really strike home or highlight that earlier referral is better. It gives us an opportunity to weigh these projected improved benefits uh, versus risks um, earlier to consider LVAD and, and certainly we have transplant, which is still associated with very good long-term survival data. It is very reassuring that now at two years, 83% survival for, for the HeartMate 3. Um, and so we're hopeful that with reiterations and continued improvement in technology and management, that long-term survival measured at three, five plus years, the gap compared to transplant will be less. And so early, early referral is um, justified and sitting down with a patient and weighing the projected benefits. And I echo uh, Ed's comments in that, you know, to do away or have now hemolysis and pump thrombosis be 1% at two years. You gave the percentage, you know, certainly at the earlier time point is just a remarkable improvement. We're not needing to send patients to surgery to repair, to replace or, or try to repair um, the pump is really replacement. And so that's, that's excellent. The only, the other thing I would highlight that's stemmed from the momentum analysis of the two-year data recently published in circulation this month, formally published, is that there is a significant reduction in stroke rates at two years. So now 10% stroke rate at 24 months. And we think about stroke rates in a a heart failure patient, which can be five up to as high as 10%. That's also a significant improvement related to the improved hemocompatibility that this pump 
um, offer. So, so tremendous uh, advantages. So not only increased survival, but also freedom from these kind of vexing complications that you face. Right. So let me ask you a very blunt question. Are, are you not getting to see these patients early enough? So that, that is the case. And when we look at registry data to understand how sick patients are that are getting the LVAD, we look at our what we call Intermax registry. And still 80% of all patients are severely ill or, or inotropes are, are being used, but patients are progressing or they're inotrope dependent. And we know in that patient population, there's a marked survival advantage of using an LVAD compared to medical therapy. And so where we hope to be is having an increased percentage of patients come in that are ambulatory, but sufficiently ill. So I think take home messages are those patients that have rest breathlessness or shortness of breath with minimal exertion, coupled with frequent hospitalizations, um, coupled with an ejection fraction that's low, a heart that's remodeled, big in size, low in, in EF, and if they have poor functional capacity and what they're able to do in their quality of life, we want to sit down with the patient and their, their loved ones to weigh the projected benefits versus risks of using an LVAT in that patient population. So that is the message at, at the region system level and being certainly being talked about and reinforced uh, internationally. So are you now able to operate on people that you know maybe you wouldn't have operated on a few years ago, older people, people with other comorbidities? Has the improvement in the technology expanded the surgical indications for these procedures, both transplant and, and, and LED? Well, it certainly has. I mean, a number of years ago, a lot of our patients who would be very ill and sick from a lot of other comorbidities and in addition, of course, low heart function, we wouldn't even think about operating on them. Yeah. The, 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 the perioperative risk would be too high. Yeah. We now have actually, in addition to the LVADs, and, and aside from that, we have some perioperative support devices and small axial flow pumps that can be inserted through a peripheral artery that allow us to support a patient for a number of days after a very, very difficult uh, heart surgery. So we're able to take patients with a lot of comorbidities with very poor ventricular function who maybe have some bypasses that need to be done or valves that need to be repaired or replaced, and we can do that uh, in these very sick patients with the advantage of having support for a few days that's minimally invasive and it allows them to sit up in bed, even ambulate in the ICU while they're recovering. Now, as I, as I followed some of these patients along with the, the two of you, I know sometimes you'll do those high-risk operations with a support device, knowing that if they don't get better, you can then move on and, and put an LVAD in. So you've got kind of a, of a safety net. It's, you're walking the high wire, but you've got a, you got a safety net. Is that, is that increasingly being done? Yes, that's exactly right. We're yeah. doing that more. We call that LVAD backup strategy, yeah. where we, we uh, evaluate the patient for an LVAD, um, and hopefully they don't need it. If we can get them through traditional cardiac surgery and they show recovery, great, but if not, they're not without an opportunity to have a good life. Now, on the medical side, uh, Jerry, what are the, what's what are the new advances on the on the medicine side for heart failure? I know everybody knows about uh, Secubitril Valsartan, uh, using more of this uh, combination drug. Uh, are you starting it earlier? Uh, you know, do, do you give it to people right after a myocardial infarction? So, what's the current thinking now? So there was, this is a great question, a very practical and given the breadth of um, heart failure burden in the United States, and we know one million admissions uh, you know, across the country, um, there was a very nice study, uh, Pioneer Heart Failure, presented at the most recent AHA, which looked at the utilization of sacubitril valsartan compared to enalapril twice a day 
used in the hospital, in the hospital setting 24 hours after the, the use of IV uh, medicines to render someone more compensated. And that was a, a very nice study published in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine recently that showed that surrogates of improved outcome biomarkers were significantly much more improved compared to those that were treated with enalapril. And so we've known um, from, from cornerstone therapy and trial work related to beta blockers and ACE inhibitors that the hospitalization is a good time point that needs to be reflected on. The more frequent the hospitalizations, for example, for one-year mortality may be as high as 40%. And so event rates, hospitalization, subsequent mortality, can be very high for that, for those patients that are in a hospital. That's a red flag that the natural trajectory is, is projected to be poor in, in many patients. So the current thinking is, is to use these guideline-directed medical therapies to alter the trajectory. And once some, a patient's rendered more euvolemic or normal volume status, there's an opportunity. And, and in, with the paradigm trial and the pioneer heart failure trial, putting this body of evidence together, we should be using uh, sacubitril, valsartan, um, as the medicine of choice in patients that have heart failure with reduced AF, ejection fraction less than 40%. And it, putting this medicine on board earlier, we think will translate into improved events. And there was an analysis exploratory where hospitalization burden was less on those that were randomized to receive Sacubitril, Valsartan compared to Enalapril. And so, earlier, the better. These frequent flyer patients are really tough, aren't they? Absolutely. And they put a huge burden on the system. Now, you know, we've heard a lot in recent years about the uh, pulmonary pressure sensors. And I want to know from both of you uh, whether you think this is, is this something we're going to be doing more of? Is it, is it, un, is it cost effective? And what are your thoughts about these things? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I'll uh, give you my comments first, if I may. Um, the CHAMPION trial was a, an important trial that proved the point that gaining control of the pulmonary pressure readings, incorporating them into decision-making to use medicines, not only associated with being able to reduce the pulmonary medicines, but patients were in the hospital less frequently compared to not having access to, to those pressure readings. The sine qua non of what defines heart failure is congestion, high left atrial pressure, and pulmonary hypertension is a sign of that. We now have over 2,000 patients, real-world experience, where we've looked at the efficacy, safety, and cost-effectiveness of um, providers uh, knowing the pulmonary pressures and acting on it in, in a week-to-week -week fashion in terms of uh, medication changes. And, and good data along these, uh, uh, this real-world experience um, to suggest, and I would highlight, that readmission burden is less when you know those hemodynamics. And when you look at cost effectiveness in terms of minimizing that hospitalization, and even a shorter hospitalization for those that happen to be hospital, it's cost effective. And so it certainly needs to put in context, and the current FDA indication is for those, for those patients that have um, shortness of breath uh, with moderate exertion and one hospitalization over the last 12 months, independent of ejection fraction, this is an approved device that can be uh, incorporated into your armamentarium to not only make these patients feel better, which is important, but keep them out of the hospital. And I would highlight that, and we're involved in this guide heart failure trial, we're, we're trying to understand the efficacy and safety of expanding this indication to patients with maybe not one hospitalization, but a certain biomarker cutoff where they're at higher risk, and maybe not as high of a burden to shortness of breath. 
And so more to come along the lines of uh, hemodynamic monitoring with the CardioMEMS device. Yeah. Now, um, Ed, you know, we're often faced with this question of what approach to take with these advanced uh, patients uh, from a surgical point of view. How do you make the decision on who gets a transplant and who gets a bad? What are the, what are the kind of critical processes? Now, I know that hearts are, are in short supply, so obviously that's, that plays a big role, but you're still doing a lot of heart transplants. And so we are. How, do you, how, do you, how do you decide on these things? Well, that's a difficult decision. We luckily have an advanced heart failure therapeutics committee that meets. It's a group of multidisciplinary providers here. Uh, Jerry, myself, and colleagues both from nursing and, and uh, social teams that come together weekly to review patients and uh, actually daily time huddle at 2 p.m. That's where we just came from actually uh, to review uh, all of our inpatient uh, uh, inpatients to determine what's the best strategy. Oftentimes, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly no age limit to transplant. There's no age limit to LVAD. Uh, a lot of it depends on the, the multiple nuances of each case. But uh, we, we, we use the team, we use this multidisciplinary approach to evaluate each patient, each in, in their own situations, their blood type, their weight, uh, their social situation, how sick they are, really to determine are they a better candidate for an LVAD or a transplant. Sometimes, of course, uh, the time is of the essence and you can't wait for a, yeah. for a heart transplant. Uh, other times, uh, patients are, are actually quite, quite well in the sense that they're not going to be high on the transplant list, but they have a very poor quality of life, and we know that an LVAD could afford uh, improved quality of life. So a lot of different considerations. The key is we need to see them, we need to evaluate them, and if they don't come to see us, we can't provide them. So early evaluation is critical. Correct. You know, you guys have made enormous progress over the last uh, several decades, and I'll tell you, you kind of... Uh, brought it home for me when I saw Dick Cheney on television the That's other right. day, and he just looked amazingly well. Uh, I don't know how, how many years ago he had his transplant, but you know, you got these people that uh, have had a new lease on life. It's pretty exciting. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think his story, journey, is a good one to highlight. You know, over the age of 70 with an Alvad bridge to transplant yeah. with some comorbidities, he's now a handful of years at least um, um, post or getting to that point. Yeah. Really just highlights that device, transplant, prolonging survival, coupled with improvement quality of life is our goal. And we really try to tailor to an individual patient what is the best projected benefit versus risk on next step. And that needs to be carefully looked at by the team. Well, thank you both for uh, just a wonderful description of what can be done. And you know, our, really, our, our, our thoughts are, let's get these patients in, get them evaluated early on. Uh, thank you for, uh, for this. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.